If you think that I've got to figure out how to do this before I do it and how to do it before I partner or hire, your better question might be, who do I need to do this better than I can, faster than I can, that'll accelerate my growth because I'm not waiting until I can figure out how to do it. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Anna Kelly, or if you want to find her on social media channels, Anna, R-E-I, Mom Kelly. Anna is a successful real estate investor who is based in central Pennsylvania. She's been on the show before. She achieved financial freedom by becoming a real estate investor. And today she's returning to the show to teach us about her time as a real estate investor throughout the pandemic, things that she and her business partners did to keep their tenants in their homes and and able to pay their bills, not just their rent, but able to continue you know, feeding their families and taking advantage of the different programs that were out there to make sure that folks were able to keep money coming in the door. And uh, like I said, not just paying the rent, but able to feed their families and stay in their homes. These are all very important things and how she acted with compassion toward her tenants to make sure that everything didn't all fall apart and it all worked out for her and her investors. We also learn about deals that she did throughout the pandemic, new acquisitions that she did when the market was fearful, right? She took advantage of that, like Warren Buffett teaches us that we should do when the market is fearful and look for opportunities. So we're going to learn about that today as well. A lot of great stuff in here from a very experienced real estate investor who has is having success throughout the country in a multitude of markets and different asset classes. We also talk about what her thoughts are about the future of not just real estate investing, but the economy and where some weaknesses may lie in certain business plans that folks are pursuing as real estate investors right now. So all very interesting stuff. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. I wanna thank you for joining us today. If you're an Apple podcast user and you do enjoy the show, I ask you to take a quick second and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the, the Apple Podcast ecosystem. I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please do share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, no matter what podcast app you use. That way you'll get every new show straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's where, when we're helping y'all escape the Wall Street casino. Once again, our guest is Anna Kelly, or if you want to track her down on social media channels, Anna, R-E-I, Mom Kelly. Great, great handle. Very, uh, very unique and distinctive. We have a great conversation today and learn about successful behaviors throughout the pandemic and the potential future of the real estate investing world. So all very good. Without any further ado, here we go. Anna, thank you for coming back on the show and joining us today. You're so welcome. It's going to be great to catch up with you. Totally. It's been great talking with you so far. I'm looking forward to learning how you navigated COVID, the eviction moratoriums and everything and where you stand today. But for our listeners out there who maybe didn't hear the first interview or don't know about you and what you do, can you give us an update? Tell us what you do, where you invest, what you invest in, all that great stuff. Wonderful. So I am a full-time real estate investor. I primarily focus on multifamily apartment buildings of many different sizes, do joint ventures and syndications. Central Pennsylvania, Georgia, Florida, and Texas are my primary markets. And I also invest in a lot of high-end luxury vacation rentals. It's another niche that's really 
fun and interesting and allows me to travel and enjoy the benefits of my properties. I started investing in real estate about 25 years ago, the first time I bought a property, and I've been investing in multifamily since 2007. I have bought and had general partner ownership in about 2,000 doors, and I'm active right now in about 1,200 multifamily units. Awesome. And I feel like now you mentioned your vacation rentals. I feel like I remember seeing on Facebook really toward the beginning of the uh, pandemic that you were buying vacation rentals. And I thought to myself, you know, privately, like, man, is it a good time to be doing that? I don't know. Do I remember that right? Is that what you did? You do. So Warren Buffett says, be greedy when everyone else is fearful, right? right. Mm-hmm. And fearful when everyone else is greedy. And so I, I knew the market really well. I bought a, a single family house that's on the water in Ocean City, Maryland. And I already owned a townhouse in this really nice resort community thinking I would never be able to afford the big single, right? They were like 1.2 million at the time. And there was a distressed sale and my broker called and said, hey, there's a sell. He just built a big two and a half million dollar home and a home. His business is shut down. And the buyer of this property had a 1031 exchange in New York City that fell through. And now he can't move on his big one until he sells this one. You know, I got a really good deal on this beach house, several hundred thousand below what it's worth. And I said, let's buy it and we'll sell the the townhouse when the pandemic's over and the market goes up. And that's exactly what we did. We just sold the townhouse and bought one in on the ocean in Navarre, Florida, right by Pensacola. So, you know, when you have an opportunity and you know the market well, you you act despite all the other things going on and despite the fact that we were managing hundreds of units through an eviction moratorium and I didn't know how that was going to go, I said, this is an opportunity I'm willing to take. Awesome. So it sounds like maybe you did those uh, vacation rental deals on your own solo. I know you do syndications as well. Can you tell us how you're structuring your various deals, how you're you know, making them all happen, putting the money together? Sure. So that's that's like a lot of questions in and of itself, right? Sure. But I'll say this for the vacation <laughs> rentals, I've had five. I currently have three because I sold a couple when the time was right. And four of those we owned. One of them I have a partner on. So we have one that we decided, you know, it's kind of a newer market to us. And it was a large purchase price, large renovation. And so we went in 50 50 with a partner, and it's about two hours from our home. So it's this beautiful um, mountain lake in Pennsylvania, really quiet, but tons of demand and not a lot of supply. So we buy properties really that have a really unique value proposition. We don't want to be a vacation rental that looks like every other one that we're just one of many choices. We want to be the one that says that's the one we want to stay in, right? And so this, you know, we have a partnership on one, we own two. And for the most part, I try to buy them myself or with one partner because we want to own these a long time and we want to enjoy them and actually use them for vacations every year, make memories with our families while cash flowing and making a really good investment. So that's that model. On apartments, I really like joint ventures as much as or more than syndications, Hmm. right? I do syndications, I do large syndications, and I believe in large syndications, but there's a lot of things that are happening in the economy, such as interest rate risk and legislative risk, risks of taxes going up, risks of rent controls and, you know, additional eviction moratoriums that make having to sell a property in three to five years, not necessarily ideal when we don't know exactly what's coming. 
So I really like to buy properties that have a value add component, very, very similar to syndications, but buy them with a couple of joint venture partners with the plan to hold them for longer periods of time. You know, maybe a 10-year hold instead of a three to five-year like a syndication. And if we invest with a few partners, we're more malleable for 1031 exchanges. We can cash out refi instead of selling and keep our money churning that way and continue to invest more. So I really look at every opportunity, Taylor, and say, this is an opportunity. The numbers really work for this financial goal or that financial goal, cash flow or growth or preservation. Who are the partners that I can bring in to help me take down this deal? And if it's a small deal with strong returns, it's a joint venture deal. If it's a large deal, it's a syndicated deal. Okay. So what would you consider small just so we, you know, have kind of a, a bearing here of what you're talking about? Because you're still talking about, you know, apartments, but smaller apartments. So it's still a not like a single family. It's a larger property than some folks are dealing with. Right. So for example, I'm working on a 20 unit right now for my own portfolio. I have 240 units with two partners that are joint ventures in central Pennsylvania that we took down over four purchases. So, you know, a 37 unit, a 31 unit, a 73 unit, and a 96 unit. So three of us took down that size deal because they were large enough that it needed, you know, a decent down payment from partners, but not large enough that I needed to bring in, you know, 80 investors at $100,000 a piece. So when I talk small joint ventures, I'm really talking kind of between 30 and 100 units a piece across just a couple of investors. And if it's greater than 100 units, we're usually syndicating it. Okay. Okay. Now you mentioned, touched really briefly on the eviction moratorium. And you know, one of the things we wanted to touch on here is how you navigated that. And you know that may or may not continue. We'll see it in the future. Certainly, we, I think we can expect at least some regulatory changes to kind of stick after the pandemic. So how did you navigate that and, you know, keep the money coming in and not have a, you know, a bunch of cash flow problems? Because that was a big concern for a lot of investors, especially right at the beginning of the, the pandemic. Yes. You know, Taylor, it was not easy. It was really challenging in, in many different regards, right? So we're, we have this health crisis and people are worried about are people going to die? Are we going to die? Are our property managers and our tenants going to die? How do we keep people safe, right? That was the first thing is how do we keep people safe? How do we continue to run our operation when people have maintenance issues or their AC units gone out? We need to send somebody in, but we can't find contractors that want to go in and the tenants might not want you in. You know, so you have the operational issues of just how do I keep everything running day to day and people continuing to come in? Then you have the big issue of who's going to be able to pay and who's not, what jobs are closing. You know, it was very stair-stepped, you know, one type of business gets shut down. And, and we had properties in Texas, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. And then I had vacation rentals in Maryland. And, you know, those were getting shut down. And then more jobs closing and more people being laid off. And, you know, initially before the unemployment money started flowing, it was, wow, how bad is this going to be? And how do we pay the mortgage, not lose the property to the bank and lose all of our investors' money? But at the same time, we can't come down heavy-handed on tenants who are fearful of, for their lives, who are fearful that they might lose their job, who don't know if they can feed their kids. We can't be heavy-handed. We have to take a step back and say, worst case, what would this look like? And how do we try to get ahead of it a little instead of being totally reactionary? So 
my partners and I, we just sat down and we said, okay, let's be proactive and reach out to our tenants immediately and say, listen, we know this is bad. We know that you're scared. None of us know what's going to happen. We are committed to providing you safe, clean housing through this pandemic. We don't want you to fear that you're losing your home, but we need you to work with us because we still have to continue to pay our contractors, our employees, our mortgage payment. So if you're able, we really need you to pay your rent and try to pay it on time. What we did is for some of my properties where the partners agreed to it, we could do it. We offered immediate rent discounts. So we said, if you prepay your rent, we will give you a 10% discount. And that way we're, we're incentivizing them to pay, to make it a priority. And we're giving them a little bit of a, a discount so that they can go out and you know pay for two or three more meals for their family that week or that month. And by being compassionate with our tenants and getting ahead of it and saying, we care about you, but this is a priority. How can we work together to keep you in your home and make that one less thing you have to worry about? Our response was really incredible. And we were able to maintain now through lots of up and down. Ultimately, we were able to maintain about 97.5% collected through the pandemic across all of our properties. That's awesome. It's important for listeners to to note, you know, occupied units versus actual collections. You care about the money coming in the door, not necessarily the number of people in the units. The collections are really, I think, the most important metric. Now, with any of these aspects of dealing with the eviction moratorium, trying to keep the money coming in, I think the the next question is like, okay, so what could happen? What what is a potential downside for any of these ways of of dealing with things? And one of the things you hear about is say cash for keys. If folks can't pay, we're going to offer them, you know, some cash to give us the keys and get out. But then the next question is, okay, what if they tell everybody in the property, you can get cash. And then yeah. you know, we have a mass exodus or people don't leave with this 10% rent discount. Did you think about any potential like secondary effects? What could happen with that? Are people going to expect a a 10% discount permanently? When do we go back to normal? Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, so we didn't do it across every property, right? And our very large properties, we didn't give them quite that much. I think it might've been 5%, right? And so we said, if you prepay, you know, it's 5%. If you prepay again, it's 5%. On our smaller properties where we had a little more control, we kind of went after, because you might have a four unit, an eight unit, a 10 unit, like not every one of 200 units is going to know what you're doing on the other buildings. But what we try to do is look at what tenants were really going to be impacted. So for example, on some of my personally owned properties, I have a few tenants that worked at a hotel or worked in the restaurant industry. I knew they were shuttered. So they're the ones that really, you know, single moms. They were going to be hurt. They were literally not going to be able to pay for food for their kids. So what we did is we went in and we helped them. We said, we'll give you 10%, you know, for the next couple of months until you get your unemployment benefits or you get back to work. So we did that. We also told them we would help them to file for unemployment benefits. So we sent emails to and letters to our tenants. And we said, you know, if you work for a small business or you have a small business, like a landscaper, we had some landscape tenants. We had tenants who owned um, a hair salon. And we said, here's how you apply for EIDL. Here's how you apply for PPP. Here's how you apply for unemployment. Here's some numbers you can call for rent assistance that people will, that will help pay your rent. So we try to be proactive in helping them to find who they needed to go to in order to get income coming back in and in order to potentially help them with rent. But if they prioritized rent, we also gave them five to 10% discounts. And 
I never worried about, oh, if they tell all these others, we'll have to give a discount. Because when we underwrite deals, we underwrite usually, depending on the location, at least five to 7% vacancy plus 2% collection losses or loss to lease. So we're close to nine or 10% all in, assuming forever that we're going to lose 10%. So I'd rather give a 10% discount and keep people there paying than to have them move, have them get behind, have to turn the unit when maintenance people weren't running, wanting to come and help turn units and then end up with it vacant and not being able to fill it too. Because we didn't know, are people going to be moving during the pandemic? Are they even going to want to look at our properties? And because we're value-add investors, we already had down units that we were turning and in the middle of our renovation plan. So those units are down. We don't want more units down when we're already going to struggle just to continue with our CapEx program because of the shortage of contractors who didn't want to come to work or who couldn't work because the government shut them down. So, you know, it's like, where do I cut my losses? Do I take a little bit of loss here, but have some certainty with what's going to come in? Or do I just go, no way am I giving discounts and then deal with <laughs> fallout of vacant units that are going to then make my property unstabilized and risk the bank putting it in lockbox? So we didn't want that. No matter what happened, we wanted to make sure we can make our mortgage payment, that we never would have to ask for a forbearance because as much as the media said, no problem, don't pay your landlord, they can take a forbearance. Yeah, okay. The forbearance is like the next step to bankruptcy. You can only ask for forbearance is essentially insolvent and can't make your mortgage payment. So we never wanted to get to that place. And we worked very careful with our banks to say, worst case, if this hits the fan and gets worse and really nobody goes back to work, what happens? You know, at what point do we let you know we might have a problem? And what, but we worked with our banks very closely to find out what are the rules and they, they were changing constantly, right? And when will you put us under a lockbox if you have to? And how do we navigate that? So we just said, listen, we need to be compassionate, do everything we can to engender goodwill from our tenants, make them want to stay, make them incentivize, but know that we care and that we do need them to keep paying. And it was very challenging. You know, I, I had retired from my day job about a year, year and a half before, right? And thought, okay, I'll just, you know, do some deals and work, but also, you know, enjoy the fruit of financial freedom. And during the pandemic, Taylor, it was like 50, 60 hour weeks per month, <laughs> you know, talking to the investors who wanted to know if they're still getting their check every month, you know, and handling contractors whose people quit. And, you know, the, the tenants was just one piece of it, but there were all these other layers of, you know, construction and rehab and filling units and the property management companies and their legal team saying, no, we don't know if you can do what your owner wants you to do. And there's just, there was a lot of challenges, but it was, it really turned out to be in hindsight, a blessing to see that you can be compassionate with your tenants, also care about the numbers and get even better as an operator than what we ever thought we we could do. You know, before it happened, we thought we're pretty good operators. You know, we, my partners and I had all been in real estate for years, right? But it forces you to get really lean and continue to run a well-oiled machine, but more, le more leanly. So I learned a lot through the process. Awesome. So I think a, a big question about kind of the, the bigger picture and, and looking forward, as you said, uh, Warren Buffett says, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. And at least where we stand today, it seems to me that folks aren't really fearful about the future of real estate right now. You know, it's a different situation than it was a, a year and a half, almost two years ago when the pandemic started. But 
you know, today prices continue to rise, at least in the single family market, stuff goes off the market immediately well over asking price, you know, demand for multifamily investments still seems strong. I still have a lot of interest from investors on my end. And it seems to me you have a, a lot of wisdom when it comes to stepping back and seeing the market sentiment and you know, yeah. the direction you should go, where the opportunity is. So what do you think about the current market sentiment and where the opportunity is and say the future of multifamily and real estate investing in general next, I don't know, three, five years? Yeah, you know, it's really hard to know, Taylor. It really is. Sure. And I, you know, one thing that I learned going through the Great Recession, so I worked at AIG, you know, when everything crashed in 09, I lost about two thirds of my 401k because I was heavily invested in financial stocks. And I thought I knew a lot. Like, you know, I had worked with investors and worked at AIG, worked with mortgages and banking and investments for years and thought, okay, I know enough about the economy. And I was so blindsided by what I didn't know, like, you know, mortgage-backed securities and how they're, you know, people make bets against them and, you know, and credit default swaps, you know, insurance on the value of other companies' stock. Like, I had no idea how any of that worked and that it could cause a financial system collapse and a real estate collapse. So I learned from that, it's not what you know that gets you, it's the things that you don't know. And I really, after 2009, became a student of the economy. So I watch not only real estate cycles, but economic cycles. I watch things like the yield curve indicator and when a recession is coming, right? And so I've seen enough downturns. And then we lived through the pandemic to say, we really have to look at where are there risks that we didn't think a lot about before, right? And for me, in this pandemic, what became really at the forefront of my mind that I really didn't think a lot about a lot, even from 09 until 2020, was the legislative risk, right? Wow. I just said, okay, I won't invest in New York City or Boston or Baltimore or Philadelphia. Why? Because there's rent controls. So I don't want my rents to ever be tapped out as a multifamily investor because I want to be able to force the appreciation. And if my expenses go up and I can't raise rents, then I can't control the value add or my income. So I knew like that kind of legislative risk, I won't invest in liberal cities that have rent controls. Well, the pandemic showed us that contract law is out the door when there is a big problem, right? So when an eviction moratorium can happen, when businesses can be shut down and don't have a right to reopen, we realize that the general contract law doesn't necessarily protect us, right? And so there's always this new chance of legislative risk that we don't see. So I'm much more heightened about looking into the future of legislative risk. And what I mean by that, you know, yes, the eviction moratorium was legislation that was forced through that said, you can't evict somebody. Well, if I have people not paying for months and can't evict them, I could really be hurting and lose everything I have. All of us could, right, as investors who provide housing. So I'm even more strong on my criteria that I will only invest right now in areas where the local taxing authorities are conservative because I don't want my taxes to go up significantly to pay for all this stuff, my real estate taxes, and I don't want rent controls. And so I'm investing only in really conservative states and conservative areas. And I think legislative risk and risks of tax increases are really the, the two big things we need to think about. So I think about that and I think about interest rate risk. So we're looking at, okay, what's happening with taxes? What's happening with interest rates? 
and interest rates are historically low. They're the lowest I've ever seen in my lifetime. I'm 46 years old, and I've looked back about 50 years at interest rates and why they change and how often they change and how badly they change. And historically, you know, three, 4% interest rates and lower do not happen and they will not continue. So when I look at deals, Taylor, a lot of deals are being done right now at high, high prices, multifamily especially. So you talked about singles. Well, when you get into large multifamily, institutional grade, class A, class B, large units, institutions are looking forward and saying, we think inflation is coming and we don't want cash. So they're buying these properties at these super low cap rates because they're happy to part cash and make three or 4% just to weather coming inflation and to not have cash. So what happens is syndicators like us, we're trying to provide our investors with a cash on cash return of you know seven or 8% preferred return. And we're competing against these larger institutions that say, I don't care what kind of cash return it is because I'm not buying for cash at this place in the cycle and where we are in the economy. We're worried about taxes going up everywhere and inflation. We're focused on asset preservation, not the income and maybe some appreciation, but asset preservation is their main criteria. So when really smart investors like Warren Buffett and really smart institutions who have managed a lot of money through various REITs and mutual funds, et cetera, even insurance companies, when they say multifamily is the place to go for preservation, they're acting based upon their fear of the near-term future of what's going to happen in the U.S. economy. So I look at that and I say, okay, if I'm looking for cash flow as my primary financial goal, I'm probably not investing in the big multifamily deals. I'm probably looking at other asset classes that are providing better cash flow right now, like high-end vacation rentals, right? If I'm looking for asset preservation, I don't mind overpaying a little bit. We're going to keep our investors' money safe, our money safe, and we're going to have the benefit of multifamily of having some cash and some upside while we do that, but I have to know I'm paying a premium. And where the real risk comes in, Taylor, is when people say, just like you mentioned earlier, oh, that's not going to happen. Rates won't go up very much, and cap rates are going to stay low, and they underwrite their deals with generally the same cap rate on exit and generally the same interest rate upon refi or sell. And I think that's where the real risk is right now is if people are overpaying just to get the deal done, they're competing with these people looking for, for preservation. The only way to get the deal done is by doing a bridge loan because Fannie and Freddie won't, it, it won't meet their numbers. You won't meet your DSCR. So investors are using bridge debt, hoping that you know in two or three years, rates won't be much different. And they're relying on that interest-only period to, to create the 7 or 8% prep for their investors. They're hoping they can refi with Fannie or Freddie and get a few more years IO at about the same interest rate. And if that all works out great, then they can provide a return. I think that's really where the big risk is right now. Bridge debt, relying on interest-only payments to make the numbers pencil, and thinking that interest rates are going to be the same in the future. I, I think that they won't be. I think we have real interest rate risk of rates going up quite a bit in the next couple of years and legislative risk and increased taxes. Interesting. Interesting. I appreciate that. One of the things I wonder about here is you mentioned the risks that we don't think about. This is a huge topic we probably don't have time to get into now, but the risks we don't think about, you know, we see 
that the, it seems to me like the economy, the federal government is all run off of the money printer right now, really. I mean, yes. and that kind of gets to what you're saying about taxes flying up, because that would be the only other way to finance the enormous amount of spending that the federal yes. government does. But what is, I guess, how does that affect, you know, the potential future? I guess that could mean interest rates flying up in the future, but it's hard to predict, you know, that happening. Yeah. I mean, the Fed is basically saying to expect seven rate hikes in the next two years. So when the Fed comes out and says, no, eh, we're not going to have much of a choice. We're trying to hold off till 2023. Well, now it might be 2022. When you start to head toward inflation, they have to cool things off. They need people going out and spending a little less so that there's not, because what happens is when you have, you know, tons and tons of demand for something and you have limited supply, the prices are going to go up. Right. And so They've got to kind of pull back this demand. And what's happened, and I'm not an economist, right? I'm just somebody who watches things because I've been through two big cycles and I've studied, right? So I could be wrong and I hope that I'm wrong, right? But what I see is the government has artificially propped up the American households by dumping checks into our checking account. Every month now I'm getting money for my kids, money that I don't need, that I don't want to pay taxes for, right? Right. We're getting people were getting $600 a week extra in unemployment not to work, right? So families all of a sudden have all this extra money. They're given the money and then they don't have to pay their mortgage or pay their rent, right? So there's suddenly all this extra cash that's then creating demand to buy all kinds of products that people weren't buying before. So companies are able to raise their prices because there's big demand, but they're still getting EIDL money, right? Small business money. What happens when that money runs out? The demand is going to fall a bit, right? So if demand starts to fall a little bit, that helps, you know, inflation. But government's going to have to raise rates in order to keep people from going out to borrow money to keep spending on other things that they can't afford. So rates will go up. I mean, I would bank pretty much everything I have that bank rates are going to go up, right? I just don't know how much and how high. And that's really the question. We don't know. So when we're doing deals that need to predict three to five years out, what can we refi at or where will prices be when we sell? We have to look at the writing on the wall. Like the Fed is saying they're raising rates. There's inflation that the Fed's finally admitted, admitting isn't probably transitory, <laughs> right? And so they have to cool it off. And the only way that the Fed really has to react, the real tools in their tool belt are quantitative easing, you know, put in money into the system or pull it back and raise or lower rates. That's their two, you know, main tools. And so I think rates have to go up. So my biggest thing as an investor that makes me go, how do I navigate this and sleep well at night is I have all these properties and I use commercial loans like everybody else. Well, the big deals, you know, million dollar loan plus. So, you know, that could be a 15 unit today, but if I can go Fannie or Freddie, I can get a 10 year rate. So I sleep pretty well at night for those properties that I have a 10-year term and that I'm holding long-term. But all my other deals, you know, I have a five-year lock. So what happens to my payment if rates go from, you know, three, 3.35 back to five, where they were not, not even three years ago? Suddenly, my payment's up, my DSCR that I still have to maintain, you know, goes down. And how am I going to cover that extra payment, still create the same returns for my investors, still pay them? And what is it going to do to my values and my rents? I don't know, right? So you have to have some extra cash set aside in case the lender makes you pay in because your DSCR goes down because your payments go up when the rates change. 
or you got to be able to sell. So, you know, I'm locking in and refining as many deals as I possibly can for another five or seven years, depending on the lender. But I think interest rate is, is the real thing that could cause a lot of pain, especially if you have bridge debt now and you're hoping rates stay low. Interesting. Great. Well, we're going to remember that right now. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Donna, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show, but you've been on the show before you already answered those questions. I've got three new ones for our returning guests. Are you ready to go? I'm ready. All right, great. First one, what is your favorite book to read for personal reasons? For personal reasons, every single day I read the Bible. It encourages me, it gives me wisdom, and it shows me that man make a lot of failures, but God's grace help us helps us to work it out, and I can have hope for the future no matter what comes. Great. Now we go from personal to another reason, great reason to read any book, I suppose, is business. What is your favorite business book? The most recent book that I read that I went, wow, I should have read this 10 years ago was by Dan Sullivan and it's Who Not How. Ah, okay. I highly recommend that you read it or your listeners go grab a copy. If you think that I've got to figure out how to do this before I do it and how to do it before I partner or hire, your better question might be, who do I need to do this better than I can, faster than I can? That'll accelerate my growth because I'm not waiting until I can figure out how to do it. Nice. That one's on my list. Haven't gotten to it, but I have heard that recommendation before. And I will certainly, uh, certainly get around to it, hopefully before the end of the year. Yeah. So third question for our returning guests is where are you traveling after COVID is over? Where are you going to go? Oh, well, I love to travel. And so we had a couple of European type trips planned when COVID hit. We were going to go to Scotland and Ireland and that kind of got quashed. So we really want to go to Scotland and Ireland as soon as we can all travel. And in the meantime, we've taken a couple of cross-country trips, even during the pandemic. We've gone to Disney, we've gone to Universal, we've gone to beach towns all up and down the East Coast and spent some time in Florida and in Texas. And we're still traveling. We're just traveling to more natural places near water where we can kind of be away from the crowds, but also have the benefits of, you know, the beauty. I'm a beach girl. So 
I want to be on the beach and eat seafood and overlook the water. And that's pretty relaxing to me. Great. Well, Anna, thank you for coming back on the show. Give us, giving us an update on what you've been up to and kind of what you see into the future here for real estate investors and the economy more broadly. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about your business or any of that great stuff, where can they track you down? Thank you so much. So my website is greaterpurposecapital.com. That's where we invest in large apartment communities for meaningful impact in the lives of our residents and our communities, as well as seek strong returns for our investors. And you can follow me on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram at Anna, R-E-I mom, Kelly. All right, great. Well, thank you for joining us once again. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much because that helps other people learn about the show and that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, don't forget to subscribe and we'll catch you here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And if you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. I hope you have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.